All right. I'm going to move this. Kids ages 3 pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, if you have a Bible, you can open it to uh, the book of 1 John. It's in the New Testament towards the end. You've got Revelation. Keep going left. Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. Um, so most of you know that on Easter Sunday, we launched a new congregation, Holy Cross East in Fishersville. I'm just coming from there. Um, one of the biggest things, some of you will laugh at this, the, one of the biggest adjustments for me is that when you ask people to sit down at Holy Cross East, you can't hear it, which is different, right? You have, in here, it's just, you're sitting in the back and there's so much ambient noise between the creaking and the floor and it's great. And there's nothing there. It's so bizarre. Anyway, um, Fishersville welcomes you. Uh, so... As we're coming into this time, if, if you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own one, there's several on the back table. Grab one. That's our gift to you. We want you to have one. Uh, but we're, we are a church that is committed to uh, preaching not stories or uh, helpful hints or uh, tips um, from Rick, which wouldn't be helpful at all. Uh, we, we preach from the Bible, and so it's really good to have the Bible in front of you. Okay. Now, uh, some of you will know, like when you, when you uh, write a letter... You know, most of us won't have any clue what that is. Uh, when you do an email, okay, and, and uh, for those of us that still do email and we're not all in text mode, when you write an email and you're sending out to write an email, you have a general agenda that you're following, right? But then towards the end of that, towards the end of that time, when you kind of are done with what, it's the yeah and this section, right? It's like, oh, oh, but I also forgot this and this and this. It's, it's like the drip pan. We're about to head into that in John, uh, in, in First John. That's going to start next week. Um, and Dave Baggett, who's going to be filling the pulpit for me over the summer while I'm on sabbatical, will be preaching next week, so I'll be introducing you to him. Um, we're also going to have Chelsea uh, Kelly, who's uh, the Reform University Fellowship's uh, newest staff member. She's coming on staff to, to begin a, uh, RUF at Mary Baldwin. She'll be here too, so I'm going to be driving them around, doing the chauffeur thing. It's going to be awesome, but I'll introduce them to you. But Dave's going to be starting that. This week, however, is kind of a summary it's like the summary of the whole letter, which is very, really rare. Like when you actually have someone who tells you, and oh, by the way, this is why I wrote everything to you. That's, like, that's, a, that's a benefit. Like we like that. Uh, but that's what we're going to get this week. But I'm going to warn you, if you tend towards cynicism, and even if you don't, this passage is probably going to mess with you because we don't really want to believe what it says. Especially if you've been in like a, a Presbyterian or Reformed church for a long time, you really don't want to believe what this thing says. So I'm just warning you from the get-go, okay? Because what's often missed is how these three verses desperately impact something that we do want, and that's certainty. So if you have your place, we're in 1 John 5. If you stand, that's our habit here, in honor of God's Word. I'm going to be reading just three verses. 1 John 5, verses 13 to 15. This is God's Word to us. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask that you speak into our cynicism. Some of us, because of life's disappointments, or just because of our 
our uh, temperament are already, because of those last two verses, kind of checking out. Um, others of us just fear hope. And so we need you to come and to, to work in us. We need you to preach your gospel to us that our happiness might be derived from, from you and not from things. That our, the, the evidence of your love for us might be proven on the cross and not in our circumstances. We need you to come and bring us back again to Jesus. So I ask that you would let everything that he's done come to the forefront. Let everything else, including me, just kind of fall away. Because Christ alone holds the words of eternal life. So Jesus, to you, our ears are attentive. We ask that you speak in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. See, now that's what I'm talking about. That's awesome. That's great. That's comfortable to me. This is good. Okay, so I think there's probably one thing that pretty much everyone in this room could agree on uh, for, to one extent or another, and that's that the, the overall flavor of thought today favors uncertainty. We're not really big on the idea of certainty, um, I, now, I could trace the philosophical roots for that and the death of modernism and yada, 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 blah, blah, and most of us would fall asleep, but uh, the fact of it is undeniable. So when I was a college student, the, the guy who was the campus director of uh, Crew, um, which was, that's how I became a Christian, um, he used to say it this way, that back then, I can't believe I even have to say it this way now, but I'm almost 40, back then, uh, that... Um, it was really popular to be seeking truth, and it was really unpopular to have found it. Right? It was really popular to be seeking it, but really unpopular to have found it. Since then, back in the day, uh, that has come into the church. And, and what I mean by that is that even in the church today, we are really big on doubt and down on the idea of certainty. Because te- today, we tend to see the idea of certainty as arrogant, or naive, or just posturing, right? We're reacting against some kind of sense of the, the God is good all the time, all the time God is good, which we have all, especially if you're under 40, have taken to mean um, that you're just not really engaging with life, right? You're not really dealing with life, and so we actually deal with life, which means that we're never happy and that we uh, know what's really going on with everything. It's called uh, cynicism. We'll get to that in a bit. But John, throughout this letter, has had a definite purpose, and he states that purpose boldly. He has written this whole thing so that we might know. Not question, not have ideas about, but to know. And that means that whatever else these verses say, and they say some really interesting things, uh, these verses are about us gaining certainty. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to look at that in three ways. There's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful. We're going to look at the certainty of belief. It's an important thing. We're going to look at the certainty of access, and then finally, a certain truth. Okay, Belief, access, and then a certain truth. Let's start with the easy part, shall we? Because if, uh, if we're all being honest, everyone in this room, well, most of us in this room, are wondering what I'm going to say about verses 14 and 15, because that's where all the questions lie. So I'm going to deal with 13 first, kind of get it out of the way, because we go, okay, whatever, Rick. Fine, verse 13, whatever. Uh, so let's start with what we have. Look at verse 13. John says, uh, I write these things to you, dot, 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 that you may know that you have eternal life. And I want to skip that middle portion portion just uh, to get to what he's saying here. So, uh, very clearly, and this, uh, look, 
I said this last week, some things in the Bible are very clear, but preachers are still going to preach on them because that's what we do, okay? Instead of just letting them sit. John is saying that his purpose in writing this entire letter is for us to know something, and that something that we are supposed to know is whether or not we possess eternal life. Now, if you were here last week, do you remember me saying that eternal life is not so much about going to be with God when you die in heaven as it is um, a a kind of... uh, a spirit, it's more like a kind of life, okay? Which is to say that eternal life is not so much about quantity of life as it is a quality of life. It's not so much about a quantity, like lasting forever, as it is a quality. Um, and that's, and we're like, but Rick, eternal means forever. And I know, but the word that is translated eternal doesn't really mean eternal. It means a life of a different epoch, a different age, What is that talking about? Well, you see, the Bible is clear that you and I were made for God. The 4th century church father, St. Augustine, Augustine, not Augustine, Augustine's in Florida, Augustine's in heaven, okay? It is very, very different, Um, but Augustine um, is very famous for saying at the very beginning of his uh, little biographical work called The Confessions, he says, oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts, they are restless until they find their rest in you. And what that's pointing to is that God has made us for a relationship with him, but that now, because of um, this little three-letter word called sin, we are bent on finding our life anywhere but in him, which makes us restless. And you know this. This is why, this is why nothing ever seems to satisfy you, right? This is why um, you become convinced, like, if I can only just get some quiet especially if you have young children. If I could just get some quiet, I will be satisfied and everything will be okay. And then you get some quiet. It's like, it's never enough. I can't get enough of it. Or, or you know, if, if I can just get money enough and that, uh, nothing seems to work. We're restless. We look for life in everything but God. And that is because, like I said, of sin. And, and now, I say sin, and most of us, whether Christian or not, tend to check out. That's because we've misunderstood what that word means. Because we think sin is about breaking rules. And so... When a preacher starts talking about sin, it's to try and get you to do what he wants, trying to conform your behavior, right? Uh, sin involves behavior, but it's fundamentally about a relationship. It's what Augustine's talking about, that we were made to depend on God in a loving relationship, but now uh, we turn and look to everything but him. We're stuck in our independence. And what that has done, in terms of the, the entire kind of scope of the Bible, is it's created three results, okay? Sin has done three things. I mean, it's done more than that, but we'll just talk about it in three ways. First, it's brought about guilt. And that's what most of us think about, right? When we're talking about sin, we think about guilt. Guilt before God. And that's, that's one of them. Paul, who's one of the writers of the New Testament, he puts it this way. He says, the wages of sin is death. And that death being a spiritual death. That, that sin has, our betrayal of God, as all betrayals do, has brought us guilt. And makes us liable to hell. So, we're guilty. Second, though, we're broken. And what that means is that we're stuck in that state. That we're not... We're not born neutral. We're not a tabula rasa. We are, we are uh, bent away from God by nature. And so Jesus would say it this way. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit. No bad tree bears good fruit. He says that out of the heart comes all of those bad things. That you don't do bad things and that makes your heart bad. But because your heart is bad, because my heart is bad, we do bad things. We need rescue. We need someone to change us. Our hearts need to be changed for us to change. So, so we're guilty, we're broken, but lastly, we're alienated from God. And what that means is, is getting at that stuff that uh, Augustine talks about, that we are restless because we can't seem to find satisfaction. So the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament would say it this way in chapter 2, one of my favorite passages. He says uh, that my, my people have, have committed two sins. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, a place for them to get their thirsts quenched. And they have hewn for themselves, dug out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. They keep looking to other things that can't satisfy them. Paul would say it uh, in in the New Testament in another place like this. He says, "You you, you once, speaking of Christians in their former state, were once alienated and hostile in mind towards God, right? This isn't the life we were made for, but it's where we find ourselves. And that's the opposite of what John is talking about. Eternal life, life of the age, is the opposite of that. And for John to say that he is writing so that we might know that we have eternal life means that he wants us to have certainty that we truly have a life where our guilt is removed, where our brokenness is healed, and where our alienation is reconciled. That means that all of these tests that John has given us, and if you've been here, you've heard a ton of them. You know, if you... If you uh, if you don't love your brother that you've seen, you can't possibly love God that you've not seen. So if you don't love your brother, you're not in. That all of these tests, tests like that, have not been given to disqualify us, but instead to help us gain certainty in what God has been doing in our lives. That's what they're for. Okay? That middle phrase gets down to why we have this eternal life. That's what we have, but now why we have it. Look back at verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And that, that kind of phrase gets to the second part of the story of the Bible. Because you see, uh, the, the whole, some of us, you know, if you, if you um, maybe you've been a Christian a while and you've tried to read the Bible uh, from start to finish. And it's okay. I know you didn't finish it, and it's okay. All right? Everyone gets lost in Leviticus, and we don't know what to do. Okay? So, but let's, let's say that that's you, and you're like, I get, Rick, I understand what the New Testament's about. That makes sense. What is this Old Testament about? The Old Testament is, in fact, like, frankly, I would argue you can't really understand the New without the Old. But the reason is because um, the Old Testament is the playing out, the working out of a promise that God made in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15, he makes a promise. He says, yeah, y'all have messed things up. You you jacked up the world, you jacked up yourselves. I'm going to make this right. And then everything from then on is the working out of how he will enact that promise to make, to bring all of creation with us at the top back into reconciled relationship with him. And he begins to play that out through this guy named Abraham. Abraham's worshiping a false, false gods in this backwater city in the ancient Near East. God chooses him, picks him out, says, You're, it's going to be through you and through your family that this rescue is going to take place. And so the whole of the Old Testament is the playing out of how God is doing that in the family of Abraham. The problem is, the family of Abraham is in the same situation that all the rest of us are in. They were just as broken and guilty and alienated as the rest of us. So, because they couldn't do it, God became part of Abraham's family to accomplish his promise. And so when John says, Son of God, that's who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. And to believe in his name, it's a confusing phrase, but it simply just means to have faith in him. Uh, and, and faith is more than intellectual assent. You guys have heard me say this a ton. You can, be, you can understand and believe a bunch of stuff about Jesus and not be in relationship with him. Right? Especially, this is a danger, especially, uh, kids, listen up. If you're raised in the church, this is a huge danger for you. Because it's very easy for you to grow up thinking, like, I know all the right answers. I know more catechism answers than my parents do. And you probably do, let's be honest. But you, you've missed the fact that we're talking about relationship with a person and not belief in a few propositions. 
So faith is more than intellectual assent. It's placing the weight of your life on something. So when we place our faith in Jesus, this eternal life, this life of the age, the life that's coming in the new creation comes back into our now through him. Uh, this life of flourishing that we're made for becomes ours, which means that our guilt is removed by the cross. Jesus paid for it. That's what it does. Our brokenness is healed in his resurrection, uh, that, that by his new life we are given new life, and our, and our alienation is reconciled through Jesus' perfect life. And so like John said last week as we read, that he who has the Son has the life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the life. It's a frustrating polarity, but there it is. All of this letter has pressed this, and it has pressed this by these tests. And the implication is this. Of all of these tests that John has given us, and, the, and the, as he pushes in, this is how you're going to know that, that the purpose of these things is to show us that faith in Christ, actually holding on to him by faith, will result in certain changes in your life. Right? It will, it will change your understanding of God and, and doctrine. It will result in certain beliefs. It will result in certain behaviors. And if it hasn't, then one needs to question whether you have that faith or not. That's what John has continually said. And this is important for us to see about this letter. The goal of all of these tests, the goal of everything, has always been to take us back to Jesus. So if you come to these tests and you say, this is great, I can see this in my life, you're to return to Jesus in praise because that didn't come from you. You didn't get things right and you didn't work hard enough to make all these things happen. Christ is working in you, you return to him by faith, and you praise him for it. And if you come up short, and let's be honest, some of us probably have, right? Then you return to Christ in repentance. That it's not about cleaning yourself up. The reason that we have eternal life is never because you got it together, because you made it better. It's because of faith in Jesus. So the eternal life will always be because of belief in the name of the Son of God. Now, that's the first one. That's the easy one, right? And I want to give some more time to these last two verses because that's where the majority of our questions come. So let's look at the certainty of access first with favorable boldness. Look down at verse 14. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, at first blush, that verse looks like it has nothing to do with what came before, right? It's as if John was talking about certainty and now all of a sudden he's talking about prayer. It's just like stream of consciousness, dude. Just kind of blah, blah, blah. Somebody's Facebook post. Like, what did that have to do with anything? I don't know. But just stick with me, though, because it, it actually doesn't. Um, verse 13 is dealing with a kind of propositional certainty. I believe X, I have Y, right? Uh, the only way to be right with God is through belief in the Son. I have this faith, faith, therefore I know what eternal life, that I have eternal life, right? Propositional certainty. Verse 14 is more about a kind of relational certainty. It's not so much a, a certainty of propositions as it is a person, okay? So follow me if you can. Let's look first at this word confidence. Translators, scholars have a really hard time with that word because for us, confidence is kind of an internal feeling of certainty, right? Boldness. I know who I am and what I'm about. That's what a confident person looks like, right? That word, though, that does not mean what we think confidence is supposed to mean. And so how do we, how do we navigate that? Well, let me help you with that. So in, in, um, in the original, the New Testament is written in Greek. In the original, that word is what you would use if you were uh, talking about a political process in the, in, in the Greek world. 
For someone to have confidence didn't mean that they were sure of themselves. It meant that they have the right to speak into a political situation. That's what that would mean. And so a citizen has confidence, meaning that they can speak into the political process. Others can't. They have access into it. But it's not just that they have access, it's what they have access towards, right? This is the confidence that we have toward him. And, re- and scholars will tell you that that toward him is talking about um, not, not just uh, something about God, that we have confidence about God, but that we actually have, it's towards him. It's towards a person. In other words, it's in relationship with him. To say that these are our rights in relation to God, which is what that's saying, that we have confidence, we have this right to access with this person, is to say, this is how great our relationship with with God is. Look at how awesome it is. Look at what the work of Jesus has done. In fact, it's actually more than that. And it deals with something that you and I have a hard time with, I would imagine. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're different than me. But it's, it's reminding us of the fact that in a relationship with God, he has in fact bound himself to us. It's not just that we have to, like the bat phone, but that he has, has bound himself to us. I know that sounds crazy, but think with me. If that notion of confidence is about, to, about the right to access, what John is literally saying is through the work of Jesus, you and I, have the right to come before God. Always. Always. That there is nothing that can keep us away. That God's door, His ear, is always open to us. Why? Because you've been doing good? No. Because of Jesus. Which means, guess what? When you're doing bad, the same access is there. Because it never had anything to do with you in the first place. Therefore, it has nothing to do with you now. Because God has bound himself to us. God has opened a door to relationship with him through Jesus. And that is important as we move into this section on prayer. If we're honest, most of us in this room are really uncomfortable with what comes next. Maybe we're okay with verse 14 because it's got that little qualifier in there. But verse 15, eh. And some of us have dealt with that discomfort by trying to explain away what is said. And what I'm going to challenge you to do is to not do that this morning. But also, I want you to remember the context we've just set up, because this is about a relational certainty. And so yeah, he says, whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. All right? So let's start with the end. When he says hears, he doesn't mean that God is deaf to things that are said against his will. God does not have selective hearing, okay? Some husbands do. I think all children do. But no, no that's not what's talking about God. Like, if you say things like, what? I, I couldn't hear you. That wasn't according to my will. Like, that's not what he's talking about. To hear means to hear favorably. Which, in other words, means to be given what you want. Now, that raises questions, Right? I mean, does this make God into a genie? Now, most of us would say no, and we would get around saying no by using that qualifier according to his will, right? And what we mean by that is that so long as we ask for what God wants instead of what we want, he'll do it. 
<laughs> That's partly true. But that has nothing to do with what John is saying. Okay? To ask according to God's will in this context has less to do with a formula, right? Where you ask something and then you say at the end of it, if it's your will, which is really a way to say never mind. Gosh, we do that, don't we? God, I really want this, but never mind. All the time. That's not a formula. To, to ask something according to God's will has to do with a relational level of trust. It has to do with trust. Trust that rests in God's will instead of ours. Now, note that I didn't say it, it, what it has to do with is not asking for things. John is juxtaposing the notion of the rights to speak, that God has bound himself to us, that because of Jesus, the door is always always open. We can always come to him, and we can come to him and bring him whatever we want. He's juxtaposing that image, which is awesome, with the image of a God who loves us and is willing to, uh, that he, who can be trusted with everything we give to him. That we have the rights to speak, but we do so in a relationship with trust, knowing that God knows better than we do, which means we have the right to be heard favorably when we entrust ourselves to him. Okay? And then John wraps it up with verse 15, right? Verse 15 says this, and, and if we know that he hears us favorably in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests. What? We have the requests that we have asked of him. Okay? Now, I know that sounds crazy. What that sounds like is that John is saying that God gives us whatever we want. Which would sound an awful lot like if Jesus were to say, um, if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. Oh, wait. That's what Laura read earlier. Right? Oh, but we don't. I mean, Jesus didn't really mean that. John doesn't really mean it here. It's not like this is said like a half a dozen times in the New Testament. That can't really mean that. Can it? See, what we normally do is we qualify this to death. And we qualify it to death with the result being that we don't pray because we don't think it will actually matter. If, you're, if you kind of are part of the Reformed tradition, the way this works is that we don't pray because in the end we think God is sovereign, he'll do what he wants anyway, which isn't reformed, it's Muslim. That's called kismet, not God's sovereignty. We pray because God can do something about it. Right? But if you're not reformed, what you end up with is, is more like uh, prayers about changing me, not about changing circumstances or some other such nonsense. Listen, how can you read the Psalms and think that prayer doesn't actually change circumstances. You think David's sitting in a cave going, God, I'm in a cave. Help me be okay with the cave. Have you read the Psalms? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, get me out of the cave. This is not right. I'm the king. I should not be in a cave. I should be on the throne. And you have got to do something about this. Where did we go from that to Prayer doesn't change things, it changes you. Does it change you? Yes, it does. It's not all it changes. Now, let's try and hear this again, the way it was meant. Because, see, remember first, John is dealing with certainty. 
We take these two verses, we pull them out, we put them in a theology of prayer, and we forget that that's not what John is teaching about. He's teaching us about certainty. In a sense, he's using prayer to talk about that. He's saying the fact that we can even ask anything of God is evidence of the new life that we have through faith in Jesus. Why? Because God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. When we entrust ourselves and our desires to him, he hears us favorably. And when, we hear, when he hears us favorably, we have what we ask for. Now, is there a qualifier? Yes. But don't miss the import of what John is saying. God is favorably disposed to us because of Jesus. And we know, know, which is the same word in the Greek, as verse 13, to know that we have eternal life. We know that we have what we've asked for because of that. Now, the qualifier. Well, it's about time, Rick, because now I can figure out why I'm not supposed to be praying anymore. All right, Here's the qualifier. God's will. Here's the thing. Reform folks, listen in real close. You need to hear this. God's will is not an abstract principle. Nor is it some kind of unknowable thing, right? When John Calvin talked about the eternal counsels of God, that is not what he was talking about. This. This is not what he was talking about. This is pretty simple. Ready? God's will is for your flourishing. It's for your good. It's for you to be made more like Jesus. In other words, it's the will of a good parent who wants what's best for their kids. Except... A good parent with infallible knowledge, which, guys, we, we don't have. I mean, we could try and convince our kids we have that. My kids, you can listen up. I do not have infallible knowledge, right? I'm wrong on some things. Just not today. Today I'm right. Tomorrow you can tell me I'm wrong, all right? Now, here's the thing. Do you know what's best for you? No. This is, everyone should be doing this. I know you're confused. You're like, I, I, maybe. No, you don't. Do I know what's best for you? No. No, I do not. I may think I do, but I don't. So the question arises, right? Well, how do I know so that I only pray for what I know I will get? Ah, now there's the issue, right? Because that issue is not dealing with our doctrine of prayer. It's dealing with our issues with disappointment. See, God's not a genie, and prayer isn't ultimately a vending machine. And that is where relational trust comes into play. What John is saying is that the work of Jesus not only gives us this thing that we call eternal life, but also a relationship with God who wants to hear from us and with whom we can trust our requests. That's what John wants us to get. It's a certainty about a big-picture redemption, yes, and an individual relationship, both of which come through Jesus. There's a ton of questions, and I'm probably only going to answer a couple, and probably, if I'm being honest, only about halfway on either of those, okay? So, but let's, let's try and get to what we can. First, let's start with doubt and certainty. John is saying here that certainty is normal, achievable, and good. That certainty is normal, achievable, and good. John is telling us that our doubt is something that actually is to be solved. And solved, in many cases, by what he is writing. I'm writing these things so that, the purpose of which, you will know, you will have certainty that you have eternal life. Life in the Son. And I know that that presses many of us in this room, especially if we're like 40 or under, 
But that's because we've been raised to believe doubt is a virtue, right? Because for us, certainty isn't very honest about life. And, and, and to always declare something certain means that you're not being very brave. Uh, and you're, you're fearing that other people are going to spiritually judge you. Uh, that, that you're kind of naive. Maybe you're just posturing. Listen to me. We need to hear this. There is a difference between doubt and cynicism. Cynicism comes because of disappointment. God didn't do what I think he was supposed to. Christians haven't behaved like I thought they were going to. My life didn't turn out the way my parents told me it would if I were just good. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I was supposed to be good and always get the trophy. Isn't that the way things work? No. No. Cynicism demands that for Christianity to be true, God needs to do what I think he should do, and life should look the way I think it should look. But doubt, as John talks about it, engages more on the level of, maybe I was wrong about the way God is. Maybe I haven't understood the way I thought things were. Maybe I'm not a Christian because my life looks this way. And for us, John gives us ways to remove doubt. Because you see, doubt seeks an answer. Cynicism has its answer. And ref- cowardly refuses to be challenged. Cynicism always looks and goes, ah, but I really know what's going on. Yeah, you say this, but I know what's really happening. That's not doubt, friends. That's cynicism. And I love you. That is cowardly. That is saying, I have a Godward knowledge. Y'all have been, wool been pulled over your eyes. But I get it. Why? I'm just smarter than y'all. I've, I've been through life. And then you turn 30, right? So, uh, listen, I love you. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking out of a point where I can relate, all right? Not, not out of a point of strength. Cynicism approaches things from a position of strength, but doubt humbly asks for help. And this passage tells us that doubt, listen to me, doubt is not a virtue, nor is it a sin. John never chastises this congregation for having doubts, for needing what he's offering them. He doesn't doesn't get mad at them. What is wrong with you? You can't get it together and believe in Jesus. He doesn't say that. He's saying, of course it's hard. Let me show you where you can find that certainty. Let me take you back to Jesus. He He doesn't chastise it, nor does he celebrate it. He simply says, go back to the gospel. Look to Jesus. And that's what he says, not just to them, but he says it to us. And so if you're struggling with doubt this morning, the goal is not to sit here and and try and figure out all of your answers. It's to return to Jesus. And be open. Be open. But now let's, let's look to certainty in prayer, okay? Because this passage challenges how so many of us approach prayer. But here's where I think it gets us the most. This passage, if we're being honest, points out that our problem with prayer... Listen to me. Check in. Our problem with prayer is not what we believe about prayer. Our problem with prayer is what we believe about God. That's where our problem is. This passage approaches the issue as if we have a particular relationship with God. Because you see, first, it tells us that it's a relationship where we know that we have eternal life in the Son and not in whatever we ask. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, you're going to know that you have eternal life because God gives you whatever you ask. (laughs) Did you notice that? 
You see, some of us here use prayer to test God's goodness. If God really loves me, he's going to give me what I want. If God were really the loving God that I thought, that I think he is, he's going to give me what I want because he knows that I need to be kept from pain or kept from dissatisfaction, kept from suffering. And then he doesn't. Or he does. Others of us want to use prayer to get God to give us what we truly think is going to satisfy us, right? If I could just have that promotion, if I could just find a spouse, if I could just have a child, if I could just get my children to do what I want, if I could just get my kids to talk to me again, if I could, if I could just get enough money to retire well, if I, could, if I could just get that next thing, God, would you give me this next thing so that I could be satisfied? But you see, if you... If you're listening, John engages us with this, with that qualifier according to his will. Because if you trust that God is good and the one who will satisfy you, if you believe that eternal life is in the sun and not in the stuff, then you can hold your request with an open hand. Does it change what you want? No. Should it change what you want? No. I want what I want. But I don't have to have it. I have what I need in Christ. Does it change what I want? No. And I'm going to keep asking. But I can hold it with an open hand because God doesn't have to prove himself to me to prove himself good. Life is in the Son. But second, it's a relationship where we know that we have access in the Son. Because you see, some of us don't pray. And Look, I've said this a bunch. If there's, if there's a chart of things, strengths and weaknesses that generally go with a church, and this church is a great church. We are strong in a lot of things. We are not strong in prayer. And my guess is that for most of us, we don't pray because we don't think God cares. He's just off in his heaven doing his thing, spinning the worlds. Doesn't have time for me. Or, others of us, though, it's not just that God doesn't care, it's that we don't want to risk the disappointment. <laughs> we don't want to risk disappointment. What? And we certainly don't want to tell God we're disappointed. So James, uh, one of the other writers in the New Testament, would, ha- would say that you don't have because you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. And we don't ask because we don't think God can be bothered with us. He's too busy. He really doesn't care about these little things. He's not much interested in the details of my life. And John engages with this, with the fact that we can know that we have what we've asked. Listen, I love the fact that my kids have not yet grown so cynical in their relationship with me that they don't ask me for stuff. Some of them ask me for crazy things. Right? And I would like to think they do that because they know their daddy loves them. And every once in a while they're going to get it. You know, it's like, eh, I can... Like they're, one of them smiling at least. They know, they know that this is, this is true. But I hope they also trust me to always do what's best for them. And I think that's the tension we have to walk in as Christians. We come to God bringing our wants, asking him for what we want, while at the same time trusting that you and I may not know what we actually need. Do we want to avoid suffering? Absolutely. Would you be crazy not to want to avoid suffering? Yes, you would. There's several folks in this room who work in the mental health industry. If you want to head towards suffering, I could introduce you to them. Of course we want to avoid suffering. 
Are there times in which suffering is what we need to make us more like Jesus? Yes. Yes. And it's hard. So we come before God asking him for what we want while at the same time trusting that we may not know what we need. We, we bring our disappointments to him when, when things don't happen the way they, we thought they should, which we also don't feel like we can do. But we also continually come back to the gospel and not to our answered or unanswered prayers to be the proof of God's love for us. Right? Whether or not God answers your prayer is not the proof that God loves you. If you want the proof that God has loved you, you look to the cross of Christ. Because it's there that the Son of God was willing to be abandoned for you so that you might be accepted. Not in whether or not you have what you asked for. You see, this passage is not as simplistic as either God gives us whatever we want or God's going to do what God's going to do and don't bother him with anything. I know that we all wish it were that simple. Because then we could go out of here in one of two ways. You know, we could go out knowing the formula or knowing it doesn't matter. And we could just go on our merry way. But this passage is far more beautiful and far more complex than that. It's more like this. It's, look at the relationship that Jesus has accomplished for us. That we can come to God bringing our wants and trust that he will give us everything we need. The certainty we have is not in a formula It's not in a set of propositions. It's in a person. A relationship. A God who loves us and has rescued us. And can I tell you, like, if you're struggling with doubt this morning, or if you're struggling with cynicism, if you're willing to lay aside the cynicism for a minute, enter back into the doubt, can I tell you that that is the kind of certainty, certainty in a person, in a relationship, and a God who loves us, that is the kind of certainty that can overshadow. Not necessarily eliminate, but certainly overshadow your doubt. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come, we know that we are, like, if, if I'm being honest with you, Lord, this is just, your timing in, these, uh, in this passage is funny for me. I'm sure it's interesting and funny for some of the rest of us. You are... Your sovereignty knows no bounds. and It's far more complex than anything we could ever imagine. And so we praise you. Right now, I want, to, I want to admit for all of us that we have not brought our wants to you because we're afraid of disappointment. And we have bought into the lie that as long as we set the bar really low, we can always be surprised by more. And because of that, we have not lived in delight. We have not lived in thankfulness. And we have not lived in the confidence of access that comes because of Jesus. And you have more for us. And so I pray that you would convince us of that. Some in this room, Lord, we've never trusted in Jesus in the first place. And so we need you to work that initial trust in us. Others of us, we just need it for just the last ten minutes. And we may need it again this afternoon, but we need you to work right now because we need faith. And so we ask that you would do that. And Lord, I I pray that you would work in us, that we could just do one thing this week, that we would just be willing, maybe even for the first time, to bring you one want. Maybe just one. Lord, give us that kind of trust, that kind of faith, that kind of delight. The delight of a child that comes to their father, not, not much worrying about whether or not their ask is exorbitant or or petty, whether or not their ask is selfish, 
but just willing to ask. We, we, we pray for that grace this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.